you know, so then he posts on there. He says, uh, post a picture of the bottle and his pour. And he says, I found this on the floor of Mike's bathroom. And I said, okay, in my defense, you know, it's only because we're, (laughs) (laughs) it's not like I plan on keeping bottles on the floor in the bathroom all the time. Welcome to another trip down the Bourbon Road with your hosts, Jim and Mike. So grab a glass of your favorite bourbon and kick back. We would like to thank Tommy and Gwen Mitchell from Logheads Home Center for supporting this episode of the Bourbon Road. Find out more about their fine rustic furniture at logheadshomecenter.com. We've got a great episode for you today as we uh, interview Michael Veach. A real treat for both Mike and I to sit down with him, and I hope you all enjoy it. But before we get to that, I just wanted to say Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, Welcome to 2020. We've got a lot of great things planned for this year. We've been listening to some of the comments and feedback from our listeners, and one of the things that's been asked for is, uh, is for us to do more of the third poor episode. So we've got a number of those planned this year. And uh, we certainly uh, look forward to recording those and maybe even having a few listeners on from time to time. So uh, that'll be fun. Uh, We are also going to do a few bourbon reviews, but we'll continue with the interviews. We've got a lot of those already scheduled for this year. Uh, It's pretty exciting. You know, in April, we uh, we will be a year old and we will have recorded our 52nd episode. So we really look forward to that. That's going to be a big celebration for Mike and I. Uh, But, you know, if you were paying attention to our Instagram, you noticed that uh, Mike and I announced our bourbon of the year this year. It was uh, uh, it was the old Forester 1910. Now, we limited our choices to those bourbons that we actually drank during episodes on the show. Uh, It just so happened that 1910 was featured in a couple of episodes. Uh, But as most of our listeners know, Mike kind of likes the sweeter bourbons and I like the uh the more spicy bourbons so we had to agree on one and as we went through our list and we did a tasting we kind of came down to uh to agreement that we both felt that the 1910 was our best choice of the year now there were some other honorable mentions uh the old carter bourbon number two woodford's uh, chocolate malted rye uh the henry mckenna bottled and bond 10 year and wilderness trails weeded bottled and bond bourbon Those were all, again, bourbons that we tasted on the show that made the top of our list. And real quick, before we move on, I want to make another invitation to our listeners to uh, pop into our closed Facebook group, The Bourbon Roadies. Uh, Join in the conversation there. Join the group. We'll we'll get you admitted as quick as possible. Some great conversations, some good people. Uh, It's a lot of fun. We have a blast in there. We uh, we definitely invite you to join us. So without uh, any more delay let's get on to our interview with michael veach well hello everyone i'm jim shannon i'm mike hi and this is the bourbon road and mike where are we today we're we're down almost downtown louisville with michael veach michael veach bourbon historian and author welcome to the show thank you for having me it's good to have you here the man the myth the legend right that's right (laughs) So we uh, we don't usually spend a whole lot of time in the beginning talking. We like to get straight to the first pour. And uh, I'm sure you won't argue with that, will you? No, I never argue for pour. <laughs> Mike, what do we have for him today? So today, we, I, you know, I'm a sweet, sweet wheat guy. So uh, I brought some Maker's Mark Private Select. It's 109.7 proof. It's called Shut the Box Edition. Shut the box edition. Where'd you pick that up at? I got this out at uh, Paradise uh, Spirits and Wine out there in Shelbyville. You know, my good friends out there, the, the veterans. Uh, I like to stop in there and support that small store. Yeah. And what what do they say about the staves on the back on this one? So it's got a uh, baked American Pier 2 and seared French. I can't even say that, man. I'm just curvy. Curvy. So eight of those and then eight of the first first one and two of the second one i was gonna say curve i just you know hey michael you've done a few picks of these haven't you i have done several yeah so what what uh what's a uh a good explanation of the curve well you know they have different five different types of staves that they use the only one that is um um, american oak is the very first one the uh um 
you know, the baked American oak, which gives you a lot of caramel, sweet flavors and everything. And then the French curvet, it's a French oak, but it's been, uh, the staves have been kind of grooved. Get more surface area. Get a little more surface area. And uh, they've been treated in such a way that they um, bring out a little bit of spice, not a whole lot. Uh, um, it adds an interesting uh, flavor to the to the whiskey. Well, let's check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers, Cheers. guys. Cheers. It's got a little bit of a, a unique spice on the nose there, I think. Yeah. That sweetness sure comes through on the yeah. nose, though. You get a lot of that kind of a butterscotch sweetness with a little bit of a, for me, it's like a citrus orange zest with a little uh, um, clove, cinnamon, baking spices type. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely, definitely get that. So it's it's definitely a, a little bit of a spicy nose there. But it is, it is citrusy. <laughs> well, I already oh. sipped on it. Yeah. Ooh, it's got some spice in it. Well, you picked a good one then for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think at 109, 109 proof, you're going to get that little bit of bite to it, right? Right. Well, it's a very enjoyable nose. I'm going to go ahead and take a sip. Cheers, yeah, guys. I've already, I've left you behind. I've drank. <laughs> Mike, Mike and me, man, this is two mics get together. We should start drinking. Left Jim in the dust. I mean, you poured it for me. I thought I was supposed to be drinking. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is, there's a lot of flavor in that. There's yeah. a lot of flavor in that. It's very I'm nice. Getting, the butterscotch translates from the nose to the palate, I yeah. think, definitely. The, you know, the finish is, it starts kind of sweet, and it just kind of dries out just a little with a little oak and a little spice. And that, that baking spice kind of lingers on your tongue. Yeah. This, is a, this is a beautiful bourbon right here. It is really yeah. good. They've done a lot of good things with this. I think this has been a, a really good um, expression for them. Yeah, uh, I think it's the most unique tasting uh, bottle selection uh, program out there. Uh, it's just really good. You know, my hat's off to Jane and all the others that have put that together. And well, let's let's keep sipping on this, Michael. Are you originally from the Louisville area? Born and raised here. Yeah. Um, spent my life, uh, here, uh, got out of high school in 1976 and then proceeded to waste about 12 years, uh, uh, having fun and, uh, working dead end jobs and decided to go back to college. Um, went to U of L with the idea of getting a, uh, um, degree in history and eventually going on to get a, a doctorate degree in history, medieval history with a secondary field of public history and did an internship out at the Filson Historical Society. And then I always tell people I'm the luckiest student to come out of the University of Louisville's history department. Uh, in 1991, uh, Nick Morgan from what was then United Distillers, uh, Diageo now, contacted the university and said they were going to put together an archive at the old Fitzgerald distillery and was looking for a graduate student to help them uh, put it together. Be six weeks during the summer, 35 hours a week and $9 an hour. And I hadn't worked full time for a while. So I said, yeah, I can do that. I don't have classes this summer. I can do it. So at that time, it kind of began for you. Right. But what was your kind of, I mean, were you, were you involved at all with drinking bourbon or in the spirits oh, I'm industry? I'm a Kentuckian. I've always drank bourbon. Yeah. But uh, I never re- really learned to appreciate it until I got this job at uh, uh, United Distillers. So you say you're a Kentucky boy and you always enjoy bourbon. What was your first bourbon? Oh, God. Can you remember back then? Probably a uh, Evan Williams and Coke that I stole from. Well, didn't steal. Uh, I talked my uh, parents into letting me have a sip when I was like six years old while they were playing cards <laughs> one night. <laughs> <laughs> Did you already have the Kentucky goatee at that time? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. So what? What about uh, when? When you actually got to choose the bottle? What was your first bottle that you chose? I mean, what was kind of your your drinker as a young man? Oh, I don't know. It was usually whatever was on sale that we could get, you know, fairly cheap. I remember buying some Maker's Mark one time. I can remember buying some Jack Daniels one time. But usually it was something, you know, 
Kentucky gentleman or something, whatever was, you know. Right. But once I got started at United Distillers, uh, um, I learned to appreciate uh, bourbon quite a bit. I was very fortunate in that uh, uh, after a year of doing this job with them, you know, that six weeks turned into a uh, 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 a year of part-time work while I finished my classwork at uh, L. Then they hired me full-time in 92. And they had a program going on at the distillery where they were testing quality control testing every barrel in the warehouse and they had a trailer set up i mean they were about two-thirds of the way through with it when i started there but still every day i got to go into this trailer they'd have uh about 12 samples set up and you were supposed to go through nose taste and um uh find the ones that were bad but by doing this, I was able to learn from Mike Wright, the head of uh, quality control, and Ed Foote, the uh, master distiller at the time, and uh, Chris Morris, you know, what to look for in bourbons and what's what's good, what's bad, and everything. You know, and you do that every day for, uh, I think it took them about another year and a half before they finished the, the program. You, you, you learn to appreciate good bourbon. So did you have some kind of formal... Uh, sensory training at all before you did that or did they just throw you to the wolves they just, well everybody in the uh, at the distillery was invited to come in and do this because yeah. you know the idea was that the more people that tasted it the more likely are going to find the bad stuff because you know some people are more sensitive to the bad stuff than others okay you know the must and the acetone and other things and that's what they were looking for they weren't looking for good bourbons they were looking for bad bourbons because uh those were the bourbons that they were basically going to end up in your gas tank one day <laughs> got it got it so mike you've uh you've written a couple of books i've written one by, by myself and two with susan Riegler. what are the, what are those those books right there well my uh first book was uh kentucky bourbon whiskey and american heritage University Press came out in 2013. It's a, a very good, solid history of the uh, bourbon industry. But uh, uh, when they asked me to write it, um, they weren't looking for a huge, in-depth history, you know, 500 pages with 200 pa- of that pages being footnotes and such. They were looking for something that would be approachable, to people that would sell well in the gift shops almost like a coffee table book yeah sort of yeah and for our listeners who susan regler susan regler used to be the uh food critic for the courier journal is uh also written quite a bit about uh uh whiskey and the bourbon industry uh uh, I'm most proud of her for the fact that uh, back in the 1990s, she wrote an article about the best whiskey bar in America, and it was Delilah's. And that opened the eyes here in Louisville that, hey, why isn't the best bourbon bar in America in Louisville? And you started seeing more and more bars adding bourbons and increasing their uh, the bourbon presence and their bourbon education and such. And I think, uh, uh, that article that she wrote, uh, uh, changed the Louisville, uh, drinking scene forever. Yeah. And it, it has changed quite a bit. I mean, I can remember the older days here when, uh, you know, it, it was hard to find a, a really good bourbon bar. Yeah. You, you'd go in there and they'd have four or five bourbons and that'd be about it, you know, and, that would be a big selection. Usually you go into some bars and there'd be, you know, the well bourbon and Jim beam and uh maker's mark on the back shelf or something, you know, and that'd be about it. I always look in like max magazine or some magazine or even online now. And you, you see these list of best bourbon bars in America. And I always think it's shameful that Louisville only have one or two bourbon bars on there. And, and now after Susan's deal, there's so many great bars here that have great selections. Even restaurants, you know, like Josh's restaurant, yeah, they have a great, great oh, bar. Yeah. There. Valari has a great one. Bourbon's yeah. Bistro across the street from Valari has a great one. You know, they're they're kind of the original bourbon restaurant. Bourbon's Bistro right. is uh, down the road uh, from both of them is Silver Dollar, fantastic collection. 
uh, go down into Main Street, you know, the Brown Hotel, the Seal Bach have great selections, uh, Proof on Main. Earl's uh, Whiskey Kitchen. Just Earl's go on and on. Whiskey yeah. Kitchen. Yeah. yeah, you go on and on with it. Well, well you look at those, uh, then I look at that list and I say, well, who who wrote this article? You know, I look at some of those things online. I'm like, who who wrote this? And it looks like an 18-year-old kid wrote it to me, somebody that's in New York or out on the yeah. on the East Coast or West Coast. Well, you know, D.C. is well-represented, I think. Chicago oh, yeah. is well-represented. Um, oh, yeah. I love Delilah's. I love Jack Rose in D.C. Yeah. Um, you and, know, there's some great bourbon bars. You know, the Century Bar up in uh, Dayton, Ohio, for Control State, uh, Joe Head has done a fantastic job of creating a bourbon bar there. I haven't been there. No, that's in Dayton? Dayton. No, okay. You really, you really should, you should talk to Joe. Joe is a fantastic uh, uh, bourbon connoisseur, bar owner, great person. I might have to do that. I grew up not too far from there, so that's your that's your home that's home area there. Right? It's been a while, but yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> I tell you what, as I'm sipping on this this bourbon while everybody's talking here, it it's opened up a little bit. Yeah, I think. it's opened up. It's not quite as uh, uh, citrusy or spicy. Yeah. A lot more of that butterscotch and. It is it is a little drying on the back of the palate. I yeah. mean not not too much, but just enough to yeah. you can recognize that. But is that, is that that French oak doing that? Uh probably the American oak. The American oak. Because you know, it's 80% of the staves are American oak. So so Mike, you were inducted into the Bourbon Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame in 2006. Yes. Is that a pretty big honor to you? I I am very pleased with that. Uh, it's nice to know that I had the respect of the uh, uh, the industry as a whole uh, to do that. I mean, I was kind of the like one of the first uh, non-industry people to be inducted. You know, they recognized my work as a historian, and you know, I helped out a lot of the distilleries as they were putting together their visitor centers, or if they had consumer questions, you know, about a history of an old bottle or something, they'd give them my phone number at the Filson. And I'll tell you what, we're up here in your office, and you know, as we we were walking up here and stuff, it's it you can see your love, uh, your true love for for bourbon and the bourbon history. You know, I think um, all these old photos and uh, memorabilia, old decanters. Um, a great, a great whiskey collection. <laughs> yeah, there's a few bottles in here. Just a few, just a few. But yeah, this is a this is a nice place to uh, to relax to to come up and sit back and have a cigar. Yeah, as you, as you do, and uh, and pick pick a fine bourbon to sit down with. Yeah, I imagine you sit here a lot with some good friends of yours. Yeah, uh, we have friends up here. Uh, uh, not a whole lot. It's not a huge office, but, you know, I'll have two or three, four people up here or something. Uh, it was really funny. Marty Duffy, who is, you know, the American representative for Glen Cairnglass, been a friend of mine for years, um, was here for the uh, uh, Bourbon and Beyond, and he invi- invited a bunch of his friends to get together and everything, and they all came over here. And uh, at that time, we were actually working on the whiskey storage room there, trying to get the walls painted and some shelves put up and everything. And I had bottles everywhere. I mean, you could hardly walk in here, you know, including in the bathroom. And uh, one of the guys walked in there and he saw a bottle of the Red Hook Rye that I had a little bit left. And he goes, wow, I've never had this. Can you mind if I have a pour of this? I said, sure, help yourself. You know, so then he posts on there, he says, uh, post a picture of the bottle and the, his pour. And he says, I found this on the floor of Mike's bathroom. And I said, okay, in my defense, you know, it's only because we're, <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I plan on keeping bottles on the floor in the bathroom all the time. Well, today I saw you had decanters or not decanters, but uh, glasses in there. Yeah. I'm like, he's, he's ready for us today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it looks well organized now. It looks like you've got a nice, yeah. uh, display here yeah um and a little, uh, little behind on my filing as you can see from my desk <laughs> yeah you don't want to see my office it's, <laughs> a, it's a shambles but uh i i you know i'm sitting here i look across and i see i see your award back there behind jim um and then i see a that old crow uh i'm guessing it's just a paperweight or something they're little figurines that they used as bar displays yeah so i just love the old old history and stuff there's yeah. a there's a little bitty antique store over in Bloomfield, uh, Kentucky, and me and my wife went in there and we're like, oh, 
go in there and see if they have any nice antiques or anything. And I'm walking around the side there and I'm, I'm like, Hey, they got some old crow stuff here. So I was like, Hey, is this for sale? No, 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 that, that's not for sale. And I'd walk on now. I'm like, Oh, this is old crow thing. Uh, is that for sale? No, that's not for sale. And I was like, was anything in here for sale? <laughs> not a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, most of it, it should be a, just a museum there in Bloomfield. Yeah. yeah. Old crow reminds me of that clock over at the Pearl of German town. Oh yeah. 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 They got that old crow clock in there, which is a great, great bar here. Yeah. In, in and, and old crow is a brand with such great history. Uh, you know, in the 19th century, it was the bourbon that all good bourbon was judged by. Yeah, President Grant loved it, right? Yeah, uh, Henry Clay took it to took barrels of it to D.C. to help grease the the legislation, and uh, uh, it was just a great bourbon. I mean, it was you know e- even up into the 60s and everything, it was still the you know a really good bourbon that all good bourbon was judged by. If you ever find an old bottle of Old Crow from the 60s, buy it. You ever wonder why, you know, distilleries don't bring those brands back to their glory days? And Well, we know why Jim Beam did. You know, Jim Beam bought national distillers who owned the Old Crow. And at that time, Old Crow was the biggest competitor to Jim Beam White. So you'd seen what happened to Old Crow. But, you know, now Jim Beam has its prominent position and everything. They really should come out with like an eight-year-old bonded Old Crow just to bring back the glory of Old Crow. What's the the decanters from the 60s? Uh, Yeah. The Chessman. Yeah. I've got a little bit of Old Crow 69 Chessman that uh, hasn't touched my lips yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to see. I think you hit it on the head. I'd like to see a old crow bottled and bond, eight year, ten year. That man, that'd be a beautiful bourbon. Well, eight, eight year because you know up until nineteen sixty four or nineteen fifty eight, eight years was the maximum you could bond something, and uh, you know that would reflect the heritage of old crow. And that's why know? we came to talk to you. You're the man. <laughs> <laughs> so is that where the, the old kind of came from the word, like when you're talking about an old whiskey, if yeah, it, like very old Barton was originally eight years old, you know, very old Fitzgerald was eight years old. Uh, that was the idea because that was as long as they could put it into the warehouse and age it before they had to pay the taxes. So and once you paid the taxes, you wanted to sell you know, bottle and sell the whiskey. <laughs> right. So the idea there is just to just to make sure I understand is that you know the, while this bourbon is in the barrel and it's aging, uh, you're um, you're not paying taxes on it. You're not paying a federal tax. You're not paying a federal tax on it. You're not paying any tax on what will be soon evaporated. Right. So you hit eight years, you're going to have something less than. 53 right. gallons, right. maybe more like 35, right? Right. I guess. I don't know what the... Depends on where it is in the warehouse. Yeah, it depends on where it is. How many leaks it had and whatever. But at that time, that's what you're going to pay on. They're going to weigh the barrel. They're going to say, there's this much in it. You're going to pay tax on that much. Well, sort of. What they would do is they would uh, dump the barrel, and they have a gauger's manual that told, would say, this is how much whiskey that should be in the you know that barrel. If there's more whiskey than what the gauger's manual says, you had to pay the tax on that extra whiskey as well. But if there was less, you had to pay the tax on that minimum. Oh, the minimum. Wow. So it was a win-win situation for the government. <laughs> right. T- taxes seem like they it's always a topic of discussion, um, even today, right? Yeah. You know, and that's been a big thing in the news here in the last couple of weeks is uh, taxes on spirits and stuff. Uh it looked like that they got something done on it this week um, yeah. on taxes. It was going to go four hundred percent for small distilleries. Now the yeah. big distilleries are still, you know, that tax they've cut the taxes a couple, three, four years ago. I forget exactly when they did it for production under a certain level. I think it's a hundred thousand gallons, right? Yeah, proof Some, gallons, something like that. And if you made over that, you paid, you know, the full federal $13.50 tax. But if you made under that, you know, that or even if you were made over that, that first 100,000 gallons of tax was at that level or whatever. And, uh, you know, it helped the small distilleries out a whole lot. And, you know, let's, let's hope that they eventually make that 
you know, permanent. Permanent. So what they do, just extend it for a year? I think they did. I think that's what they I read yesterday was it's just it's just a one year extension and it still hasn't made it through the Senate. Yeah. Um so we'll hopefully they'll they got a lot of craft off. distilleries wiping the sweat off their forehead right now. They got at least got a year reprieve on it. Yeah. So I know on my trip I just took, a lot yeah. of guys they they brought that up and they they were sweating it. They were yeah. like, Oh, this is gonna put a hurting on us. Yeah. I actually prefer the term artisan distiller. Artisan? Yeah, because you know, for, for small distilleries, because all distilleries are craft. They have craft. You know, you can't tell me that Jim Beam that, you know, makes you know, over a thousand barrels a day still isn't doing it using craft. I mean, it's it it is a craft. And to me, size has nothing to do with quality. It's you know, that's why I prefer artisan distillery for the small distillers. You and what know? do you consider a small distillery? You know, any anybody that's making under 20 barrels a day. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that's still a lot of a lot of liquor. Yeah. I mean, but uh Yeah, I'd say 20, 20 barrels a day. That's that's a lot of whiskey coming There's out of a there. lot of uh artisan <laughs> distilleries yeah. that, that are working their tail off to produce a barrel or two a day. Yeah. Even so. And what do you think about all these new distillers that are popping up? Uh, you know, the six I went to, all of them are just they're pretty new since 2013. There's a lot of really good ones out there. There's a lot of them that are making crap, but there's a lot of them that are really, really good. Uh, I've been highly impressed with a lot of them. I just came back from uh, doing a charity event in North Carolina in Charlotte. And my host took me up to visit uh, the Southern Distilling Company and the Southern Grace Distilling Company up there. Two very different uh, distilleries. Uh, you, you can read more about them on my blog on Monday. But um, neither one of them are making a whole lot of barrels. I think Southern Distilling is making about 20 barrels a day and uh, Southern Grace is making like one or two barrels a day. And both of them are making really, really good product. You know, Susan and I, of course, have tasted whiskey from all over the United States. Uh, every bottle we could find for the bourbon tasting notebook and the uh, American whiskey tasting notebook. And there are some of them, you know, you have to wonder, you know, are they going to be around in a couple of years? Because their whiskey just isn't good. <laughs> you well, know, you know, you, you get to taste a lot of. A lot of young whiskey because a lot of the companies are new. Well, com- there's nothing wrong with young. You yeah. can have really good young whiskey, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a lot of them that have things like you know lots of musty flavors, a lot of acetone. They're not making their cuts right. Uh, they're probably putting it in the barrel at 125 proof and using small barrels. Um, you know, small barrels can make good whiskey, but uh, it's not as easy and you know, you know, they had half barrels back in the 19th century. If they were, if it was made good whiskey, we'd still have them today. You know? Yeah. 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 I mean, we've had, we've had good whiskey and we've had not so good whiskey. Yeah. I've, I've, we've had a lot of young whiskeys that, I mean, you can see through the youth, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree on that. Yeah. You know, I, I think I've been to places that they're using small barrels and they've got that that art of it, the artisan distillery, they got mm-hmm. that figured out. And then well, I've been to places that are using small barrels and they definitely haven't figured it out yeah. at all. Well, one of the big problems I think that the uh, people that are using small barrels is they overchar the barrels. You know, they put a number four char in it. Well, when you're making a barrel, you know, part of that making of the barrels involves toasting the wood as you bend the staves and such. And sometimes you add a little extra toast. Well, on a small barrel, you don't have to heat it as much to bend those staves, so you don't get as much of that toast unless you go to the extra level of toast. And then when you put a number four char on it, you just burn that toast away completely. Now, that toast contains the caramelized sugars of the wood, right? Well, the toast breaks down the lignans in the wood and gives you those really nice vanillas. It turns it into vanillin, which gives you that really nice vanilla flavor. Uh, all the char does is give you the tannins. It gives you the red color and that really dry kind of bitter wood flavor. And you get that caramelized sugar when you char it. You know, when you add that heat and you're really caramelizing you, the sugar. you get that sort of burnt marshmallow kind of right. from it, right? Right. But um, when you have a small barrel and you put a number four char on it, you're burning that toast away completely. All you're getting is that bitter wood and a little bit of that caramel 
you know, if you're going to use a small barrel, use a number one or number two char. Yeah. You know, it seems like a much li- better whiskey doing that way. It seems like lately that's what what I've been seeing is people will stick with that one or two. Very few um, will go to that three or the four. But yeah. So, yeah, I think that it's it's a very I think the effect of the barrel is amplified on a small barrel. It happens a lot faster. I think it can happen a lot faster. I think it may be the idea why they choose the smaller barrels is to try and maybe encourage that process to happen a little bit quicker than normal. Well, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Lincoln Henderson has always been, you get a lot of flavor from that barrel in the first six months and you spend the next three and a half years trying to get rid of it. Uh, The flavors that first come out of the barrel aren't all that pleasant, Mm -hmm. but as times as it sits there and oxidizes and breaks down into different chemicals, those bad flavors turn into good flavors. Well, on that note, gentlemen, why don't we continue drinking on our makers here a little bit? Take a sorry, quick f- break. And- sorry, I finished mine already. <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm sitting here with a little you, bit. So. You're, the, you're the only one left, Jim. It's- <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I'm always, I'm always following from behind. I, I did pour you a heavy pour. So I- <laughs> <laughs> Let's... Uh, let me keep sipping on this. We'll All take right. a short All break, right. and when we come back, we'll see what you've got to pour for us, Michael. All right. Sound good? All right. We would like to thank Tommy and Gwen Mitchell from Logheads Home Center for supporting this episode of The Bourbon Road. Logheads Home Center, nestled in the hills of Kentucky, is an industry leader in building handcrafted rustic furniture. Family owned and operated, they take pride in offering only the very best for their customers. The Logheads, and that's what they like to call themselves, are skilled woodcrafters who are passionate about creating rustic furniture for people who appreciate the beauty of natural wood. Owners Tommy and Gwen don't just sell the rustic lifestyle, they live it. And you can be sure that Logheads Furniture will always be handcrafted in Kentucky by artisans who embrace the simple way of life. Logheads Rustic Furniture is made from northern white cedar, a sustainable wood that's naturally rot and termite resistant. Its beauty and quality will add warmth to your earthy lifestyle for generations to come. Be sure to check out everything they have to offer at logheadshomecenter.com. And while you're at it, give Tommy and Gwen a shout on Facebook or Instagram at Logheads Home Center. you here the nelson's greenbrier tennessee whiskey all right uh was down there visiting uh the distillery a couple of weeks ago the saturday after thanksgiving and uh picked up uh some bottles of it i've known uh charlie and andy nelson for several years it was really funny uh charlie contacted me wanting to know about his history uh because you know they had no idea that their family was in distilling you know, until they happened to be in Robertson County and saw the old warehouse with the historical marker out there. And their dad said, yeah, your great grandfather was, <laughs> you know, but um, they've brought the brand back and they had contacted me. I wouldn't know if I had any history. Well, I actually had a whole bunch of uh, uh, files uh, from the old United Distillers Archive because Shin Lee owned the Greenbrier Kentucky bourbon label here. Uh, and they had done kept files on the Nelson Greenbrier, which was actually the biggest Tennessee whiskey uh, uh, out there until 1910 when Prohibition shut down the Tennessee distilleries. Yeah, I was going to ask that. So I had always thought that Nelson Greenbrier was quite a big operation. It was a huge operation. And they've brought this brand back, and they've actually found uh, uh, a reference to the old mash bill. And what makes it really interesting is that it's a wheated mash bill, corn, wheat, and malted barley. Man, I'm going to like this. Mike, yeah. Mike popped up there. <laughs> I yeah. did. I got all excited. I'm like, man. <laughs> yeah. So they, they started aging it. Uh, uh, the whiskey in this, according to Charlie, uh is some five and six year old whiskey made at their Nelson Greenbrier uh, distillery there in Nashville and their hybrid still. But in order to 
get a lot of more production than they were capable of. They actually contract distilled with another uh, small artisan distillery that had a column still. So it's got some four-year-old column stilled um, Tennessee whiskey made to their specifications. As a matter of fact, their distiller went to the contract distiller and oversaw everything that they did to make sure they were doing it the way that Nelson Greenbrier wanted it done. So it's got some four-year-old column still Tennessee whiskey in there, as well as their hybrid still stuff from, from Nashville. But it is a weeded Tennessee whiskey made with corn, wheat, and malted barley, uh, aged in 53-gallon barrels, and um, just a really, really good Basically, four-year-old Tennessee whiskey, and it's it, by by calling it a Tennessee whiskey, we all understand it, it has it's gone. that charcoal th- mellowing. But their charcoal mellowing is different from what they do at Jack Daniels or George Dickel. Instead of having a big twenty-foot column of packed with charcoal, they basically have a fifty-three-gallon barrel packed with charcoal, which is really the original charcoal mellowing process. You know, the Filson actually has papers from the Bill Booth family collection from about 1800 uh, with a drawing and a description on how to build your charcoal mellowing um, process to improve your whiskey. And and so what they did was they took uh, sugar maple Charcoal. Charcoal. And then they packed it in a barrel and then they filtered their whiskey through it. And that would be the white dog. The, yeah, the unaged whiskey. The unaged whiskey. It, and then they put it in the barrel. And what that does is it uh, kind of jump starts the aging process. Plus, it helps clean out some of the uh, um, uh, less desirable flavors that you can get in the distilling process. Uh, and, you know, technically it, uh, it, it changes the pH, uh, uh, makes it less acidic, uh, uh, literally sweetening it up a little. All right. Well, I'm excited. Let's try it. Man, I'm kicking myself right now. Are you? Yeah, we were down there for my birthday and uh, back in October, me and Jim took our wives down to Nashville and we walked in there and I walked out and didn't even buy a bottle now. Now I got to go back. To well, Nashville. I'm not sure it was out in October. This it has only been out. Uh, it was sometime, I think, maybe late October when they. I think I think they were just putting it out on the shelves, Mike. But it was it was a madhouse in that place. It was. It was. The, you know, Nashville can get that way from time to time. Yeah. You know, it was just so packed. I think we just wanted to be on our way. I feel, I feel better now. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> another reason for me to go back to Nashville. Yeah. Me and my wife love it down there. So let's cheers. 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 A lot of vanilla, a lot of fruit. The fruit kind of reminds me more of like ripe apple or pear. Definitely pear, a lighter fruit. Yeah. Um, There's well, a little bit of spice, a little bit of its baking spices, uh, kind of a nutmeg maybe. Now, what was the malt? The malt content on this? Yeah, I'm not sure what their mash bill there's is. There's a they little bit really, in there. Yeah, there's, yeah, they use some malt. Definitely a good, man, I'm, I'm happy you picked this. I love some wheat wheat whiskey. <laughs> This is just a really good, you know, Tennessee whiskey. I think they've got a hit. You you can only get it in Nashville and some of the surrounding counties right now because they just don't have the distribution out there right now. Uh, They don't have the whiskey to supply it. They've made a beautiful distillery there. Yes. That's a great place to take a tour. And, and they're looking to build a new one uh, in Robertson County, the county where the original distillery was. Um they want to build a column still so that they can actually, you know, make enough to fill their demand. And when they do, the Nashville distillery is going to be more of their uh, uh, experimental small batch type stuff, you know, one offs and things like that. And then they'll be making this Nelson Greenbrier up in uh, uh, Robertson County. I think the label, the label on this bottle is just. That's an excellent looking label. Well, that whole bottle, what they did is they took a historic Nelson Greenbrier bottle, had it laser scanned, had a bottle made to look like the original one. Of course, it's changed a little bit because this is metric instead of, you know, four-fifth quart. It's a 750. And then they did the uh, label as basically as close as they could get to the original label and still get it approved by the government. And what I like about it is if you look at it on the bottom. I saw that had the Tennessee DSP-5 on there. Yeah, it's got their little DSP-5. And, you know, it's just a really nice pay attention to detail. Now, did you say this was non-age stated? Non-age stated. 
I just know it's a good drinker. I think yeah. it's a good balance for you too. It's got a lot of sweetness, but there's a little bit of spice there. Yeah. As it's opened up a little bit, that spiciness kind of, to me, it's it's gone away a little bit. And yeah. That first sip of it, I can taste that spice. Well, you know, for me, the spice has changed a little as it's opened up from that nutmeg, baking spices to a little bit almost like a white pepper, you know, kind of a oh, yeah. floral yeah, pepper. It's definitely a pepper kind of. Yeah. It's, it, it's, got a, it's got that fruity note up front, but on the back, you get a little bit of that. And I think white pepper is probably a good way to say it. It's yeah. not got that bite of a black pepper, but right. a little bit more. Yeah. A little more floral, a little yeah. different. Uh, well, that's a good whiskey. I, I think uh, we need to get back down to Nashville. Maybe even stop it and talk to these fellas. What do you think, Mike? Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Tennessee is actually coming back. Um, yeah. Besides just having one or two giant distillers there. to Now they've got these artisan distillers there that are producing some great stuff. Um, and Nashville's putting itself on a map as, hey, we got some whiskey here in Nashville. Well, you know, and I, I was really impressed with uh, what I saw a couple of years ago when I was down there at the Leapers Fork Distillery, too. Leapers they, Fork. They've, they've done a really good job. Uh, we were down in Chattanooga, Chattanooga here not too long ago, you know, and you have uh, uh, two distilleries in there. They're both putting out a fairly decent uh, uh, product, you know. Uh, uh, the uh, the Gate Eleven is all sourced whiskey, but the Chattanooga is uh, uh, distilling some of their own. They've got some really nice stuff that they've distilled. Uh, uh, I can't complain about the Gate Eleven. The, the, what they've sourced has been very good whiskey. So you know their their distiller or, or uh, owner or whoever is picking these barrels is doing a good job. Yeah, I got the, I got a chance to go to the Southern Whiskey Society event down there in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. Okay, and uh, Chattanooga whiskey was there, and they had their offerings, and I was really impressed. Yeah, really impressed with that. Now, Mike, you were just in Memphis. Yeah, and I, old Dominic. Uh, yeah, they they they, but they brought some. an old uh, uh, well not old. They brought a young Kentucky girl down there, and she was yeah. the uh, yeah. She worked for Wild Turkey before she, she went down there. Yeah, she's right out there from where me and Jim live at, and she's from Baghdad, and she worked at Wild Turkey, and um, she definitely knows what she's doing. Yeah, she's. I, I was impressed when I visited the old Dominic down in Memphis. That's a beautiful. They have a beautiful facility there, yes. and they got good fried chicken right across the road. Right, <laughs> Tennessee's go got there? it going on, no doubt Ten- about it. Yeah. Ten- Tennessee has a rich heritage. It's about time that they start taking advantage of it. Uh, you know, Jack Daniels and George Dickel were the only games in town for a long time. Uh, my only worry is, is that, you know, here in Kentucky, at least, I don't know how true this is in other states, but for the most part, you know, they realize that, you know, you either hang together or you hang separately. And you never hear anybody in Kentucky talking bad about any other distillery. Right. But when I was in Chattanooga, you know, both those distilleries had negative things to say about the each other, you know, and Rosemary and I just ignored, you know, the comments. But it kind of bothered us both, you know, because that's not good for either one of the distilleries, and it's not good for Tennessee whiskey if they start bad-mouthing each other. You have to realize that a rising tide raises all ships, right, Mike? Right. That, that is definitely true. And I think, you know, me and Jim always like – if there's a controversy at a distillery, if we know about that or there's some word out there on something, well, I think we kind of tend to stay – we try to stay away from that. Or if there's any negativity, we don't want to bring that up on our show. We want to tell good points and the good notes of right. what they're trying to do. And um, and that's a shame they did that. Yeah, I, I was really disappointed. I, I, I'm hoping that they grow out of that. <laughs> And that that's sometimes younger, I think younger businesses or maybe jealousy, you know. Yeah. Is, well, the fact they're practically across the street from each other probably doesn't help that. Or no, so. I, I, I mean, business in general is tough and it's, it's hard to build a successful business. Yeah. But um, usually it, we've noticed in this industry that these, these, these companies tend to stick together. Right. They tend to support each other, talk well about each other. They may not promote the other guy's brand, but they're not going to say anything bad about it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's the thing. Just don't say anything bad about anyone else. Uh, you know, in Kentucky, they all work together, for, you know, frankly, because half of them are related to each other. <laughs> you yeah. Know, they've been in business for such a long time, the big companies. Uh, but, you know, I've heard several of the big distilleries say, if you're a small distillery and you have a problem, come to us. We will help you. 
Because the worst thing that can happen is if you start putting a bad whiskey out there that soils the reputation of bourbon. Yeah. We want you to make a good bourbon because we want bourbon's reputation to be really yeah. good and, and stay that way. And a lot of the distilleries that weathered the storm of the 80s, yeah. you know, weathered that storm, worked together through the 90s and mm-hmm. the early 2000s to bring the industry back. Right. They were all out there beating the street, mm-hmm. you know, traveling, talking about bourbon, doing whatever they could to bring bring the, you know, that brown spirit back to life. It, right. it almost died for a while there. Right. So where are we now with with bourbon as far as production quantities compared to what they were in the past? We, we're just now getting back and uh, uh, surpassing what we were doing in the 70s. You know, uh, bourbon went down so much in the 60s and 70s and 80s that it's really that you know this so-called bourbon boom is really kind of artificial because we're just really getting back to where we belong yeah you know the market share that we had back in the 40s and 50s i don't see like any other big spirit coming out and doing the same thing the, the, you know this phenomena came about for several reasons you had in the 60s First of all, you had a generation that said, "Don't trust anyone over six or over thirty, and uh, uh, we're not going to drink what our parents are drinking, which is whiskey." You know, and you, and you throw in there that you start having the growth of two products that were un, virtually unknown in the forties, fifties, and sixties: uh, vodka and tequila. Yeah, you know, every year Liberty National Bank put out a report on distilled spirits and how much. Uh, was being made, what was their market share and everything. Vodka and tequila never made it on that report until 1970 because there was so little made and sold in the United States. You think that's because, you know, to me, those two are more of a fast-paced person's drink. And to me, bourbon is something somebody sits down and drinks together and has a conversation. (laughs) And we're getting back to that in America where we're sitting down together and having conversations. Well, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with youth. You know, vodka and tequila lend themselves better to what I call lollipop drinks. Heavy fruit, sweetie, sweet, you know, something that you can taste that reminds you of licking a lollipop. You know, bourbon is a more mature flavor. You have to learn, you know sit down learn to appreciate it you know there is sweetness in there but it's subtle sweetness compared to you know your tequila sunrise or your you know vodka and orange juice you know i mean the the 60s and the 70s were a time when the youth of america was really rebelling against you know anybody in control yeah and if and if, if and if the establishment was drinking bourbon and uh, not just bourbon, all whiskey, all whiskeys. Yeah. Then they weren't going to drink it. Yeah. You know, if you were doing this or you're doing that, they, they were against it. You know, right. it was a, it was a big change in right. the mentality. And then you had to, to compound matters. You had the industry that shot themselves in the foot. You know, Shin Lee had overproduced in the fifties. So they were doing, they had huge amounts of whiskey in the warehouse. You know, as a matter of fact, that's why the bonding period was changed from eight years to 20 years in 1958. Cause if they had, if Shin Lee hadn't gotten behind and got the government to change that, they'd have gone bankrupt just paying the taxes on all the whiskey that they produced in the early fifties. Right. So they were artificially keeping the price of whiskey lower than it should be, which cheapened the reputation. And, of course, the other distillers, the only answer was, we'll lower our price, too. But, you know, and it just cheapened the reputation as a whole. So you got all these things going on together that was hurting the industry. And it really took into uh, into the late 70s when single malt scotch was reintroduced into the United States uh, in force. You know, there had been some single malt scotch here, but nobody really knew the difference. You know, they'd really weren't talking about why, you know, Glenn Fittick was different from Johnny Walker. But they started talking about single malt scotches and doing things like holding tastings where you would taste uh, your scotch with cigars or you would taste it with cheese or you would taste it with other foods and show that 
whiskey could be enjoyed for its flavor. It wasn't just something you shot back to get drunk on. Right. And once they started doing that, the bourbon industry eventually caught on to this idea and started introducing the single barrels and the small batches and things like that. So, you know, if, if you look back, I guess, would you say the mid 60s to the late 60s was kind of the peak? Then it started to drop off after that. Oh, I'd say it started dropping off in the mid 60s. Mid 60s. Yeah. Now, what about the volumes from the late 1800s? I mean, I've heard like when you go to the museum tour down there in Bardstown, they talk about sheer volumes from the from the 1800s. Like, um, you know, the average adult male, adult being 15 years or older, drank 18 gallons a year of, of whiskey. That's a lot. And if you go out to if you go out to the uh, the old the new Castle and Key Distillery, which is used to be, you know, the old uh, old Taylor old Taylor Distillery, you see the size of that stuff there. It's just enormous, right. huge. I mean, what kind of volumes were they doing back then? I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but uh, you know, they they were doing a lot more. Yeah, and there were a lot more distilleries at that time. Yeah, you know, there were. 50 or 60 distilleries in Kentucky alone in, you know, before prohibition. And even after prohibition, you still had, you know, 20 or 30 here in Kentucky and over, you know, they started consolidating down, going down, starting in the fifties after Shin Lee overproduced, uh, you know, first thing they did is they shut down like eight of their distilleries here in Kentucky. And, uh, as they kept the price low during the 60s, that forced a lot of the small distilleries out of business because they just couldn't compete. They right. were, you know, couldn't make a profit. Mike, have you been over to Buffalo Trace and I, they call it the Pompeii of distillers? Oh, yeah. Um, and what do you think about that? Oh, it's very impressive. Uh, I'm so glad that they decided to preserve that. Uh, that is part of the uh, the heritage there, you know, something that E.H. Taylor built when he was there. And how much do you think they were producing out of that that place? You know, I don't remember the exact figures off the top of my head, but uh, you got to remember under E.H. Taylor, for the most part, they were a pot still distillery. They were using huge pot stills instead of a column still. It wasn't until uh, the 1880s that they put in their first column still there. So, uh, you know, by today's standards, they'd be more along the lines of a Michter's and not a Jim Beam. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of hundred barrels a day or a hundred barrels a day versus, yeah. 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 Versus, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred. thousand to fifteen. I think Heaven Hill's at about thirteen hundred a day. And what's Jim Beam at? I mean, I, I, I don't know what I think they're well over a thousand a day, right? Yeah. Now, are they going to open that up to the public over there? Oh, yeah. They Usually. have a tour that takes you back there. Yeah, you can do the the, Pompeii, the Bourbon Pompeii yes. tour. Man, I, to me, that I just love that. Uh, you know, they're they're uncovering all this yeah. history that nobody knew was there. And somebody filled in with dirt. Yeah. Um, that, that's, a, that's a shame that it was filled in with dirt. But. So you, um, you had an article recently where you kind of uh, answered – Trying to answer the question, is rum the next spirit, big spirit? Yeah. And uh, I thought it was a very interesting article. Uh, you kind of knocked that down. You want to you kind of talk about that a little well, bit? Well, it's like I was saying, you know, we're having a bourbon boom now because bourbon went so low. We're really just getting back to normal balance. I don't think we're ever going to see that type of imbalance again. I don't think that there's going to be any spirit out there that's going to hit America like vodka and tequila did in the seventies. You know, when you had two spirits that boomed like they did, you know, sales has to come from somewhere. Sure. I don't see that happening. I see all spirits growing, you know, as markets expand, uh, uh, as you get, you know, more and more people in the world. Fewer fewer dry counties. Fewer dry counties. <laughs> uh, you're going to see a growth in the industry, but I don't see, you know, another next big spirit, so to speak, 
as they're thinking, you know, the the phenomenal growth that bourbon has had over the last couple of decades. But like I said, that growth is kind of artificial because really all that growth is is bringing them back to where they were in the you know forties and fifties as far right. as market share and and such. And a lot of this growth is international. And a lot of this growth is international. So, what do you think the next big the next big thing is? Well, I expect that you know that rye whiskey is going to continue to g- gain back its market share that it lost back in the '40s, basically. Um, you know, Pennsylvania really screwed up, in my opinion, when they basically started forcing distilleries out of business up there through taxation and legislation and such. Uh, you know, and as they did that, that hurt the rye whiskey market. Now, when you go up and you know in the in the 90s or such, when you went up to New England and talked about rye whiskey, they were talking about Canadian whiskey, you know, whereas in the 30s or even back in the teens, uh, you talk about rye whiskey, they were talking about Pennsylvania and Maryland rye. Maryland rye, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think rye whiskey will will continue to grow its uh, uh, share back to where it was. Do you feel like rye is going to come home a little bit to Kentucky? Well, rye's always been here in Kentucky. You know, even in the 19th century, uh, a lot of Kentucky distillers were making rye whiskey. But the rye crops are really just now starting to return to Kentucky, yeah. right? Well, you know, there's a problem with rye in Kentucky, you know, and barley. I remember my grandfather raised barley one time at his farm in Scottsburg, Indiana, and the problem was is that he couldn't get a good quality price for it because there was too many wild onion seeds in it. Oh. And what now makes, that'll add some spice to bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're going to get that in, you know, southern Indiana, Kentucky, and such. You know, wild onions are going to grow. When you go further north, they aren't as prevalent. Yeah, you know, and you get cleaner flavors and such you know maybe they've worked this out with herbicides and everything where they can kill the onions off before they plant it and you know but uh i don't really expect rye to be the next cash crop in kentucky i know there's some distilleries working on it yeah you know we've talked to a few we talked to elizabeth mccall over at woodford reserve and she's right. she's you talking know, about Victor's is doing the same yeah, thing yeah and, so everybody's playing with it a little bit they'd like to see that local rye come back yeah Personally, I'm a big fan. I'm a big rye guy. Mike likes to mess with me a little bit on it. I I, I, I think wheat whiskey is, to me, is it. But um, I'm excited to see where the industry goes. I was down south, and, you know, they uh, one of the distillers down there, he's excited about uh, rice whiskey. And I, that kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, you know, I've been over to Japan, and, yeah. and then Korea, rice whiskey is a big thing. So... I wondered if he was, had something there because there's growers down well, there. Well, you know, that reminds me of a quote from Ova Haney from one of my master distiller seminars. Someone asked him about why bourbon is made from corn. And he goes, that's because of what they grew in Kentucky. If they grew rice, it had been made out of rice. Yeah, yeah. Well, the further south you go, more rice production there is. And, uh, you know, South Carolina and the New Orleans and, you know, Louisiana and such where you got more flavor uh, favorable conditions for growing rice you're going to get more i mean that's the caribbean with rum right right is uh you know that's what they make down there they grow sugar canes so they make rum yeah i thought there had been more rum in in louisiana than there was and but it it's coming on down there yeah Uh, they're coming on down there with that but i'm wondering if rice will rice whiskey will be a flavor somebody will like here in america i I don't know Uh, it'll be interesting but uh we'll see but, you know, rum has, back to your question, and, uh, you know, rum's going to continue to grow. You know, I have no doubt about it. You know, is it going to be the next big thing in the way that, is it going to grow like bourbon has in the last few years? No, I don't think it will. But, you know, there will be people that will drink, you know. I personally, I love a good aged rum. I wouldn't give oh, you yeah. a, I wouldn't give you a dime for any of the white stuff out there, but, uh, <laughs> uh but I like a good aged rum. And there's a lot of companies playing with a lot of, uh, you know, that Solera aging and some of the other right. aging techniques on rums. And there's some interesting stuff coming out. Right, a lot of good blending. Yeah, a lot of good blending. There's a lot of good things coming out of the rum. It'll continue to grow. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be, you know, 
20% growth or anything like that. Right. But, yeah, I suspect that they'll continue to grow their market. Uh, uh, they may even grow a little bit of their market share if it does. That means that something else is going to lose share. Uh, personally, I suspect it's going to be the white spirits. You know, that That's what has hurt most through the bourbon boom has been the sales of vodka and things like that. Yeah, I mean, personally, I mean, I, I love a good rum. I, I enjoy some, I grab a bottle every now and then I like to, to try it out a plantation or a Papa's Pilar or something like that. And I'll try them. And, and I know there's a lot less regulation in rum. Yeah. So there's some things going on there that, you know, yeah. not as regulated or strict as bourbon is, but yeah. Yeah. you know, bourbon's got some of the strictest regulations sure. out there. Absolutely. But I, you know, personally, I like a tequila. I, I'm a big fan of gin, yeah. but um, there's very few gins out there that get my attention. Yeah. And one of them is out at uh, Castle and Key. Castle and Key, yeah, absolutely. Talking about gin, yeah. Uh, we were in D.C. and there's a small distillery there that actually started as a gin distillery, but they also do a rye whiskey called Green Hat Distillery, and they have a gin that I thought was like really good. Now, is it a London Dry or an American gin? Eh, probably closer to a London dry than okay. anything, but but it, it was really, really good. I mean, we bought a bottle and, and uh, every now and then we'll pour a gin and tonic just because it's, you know, yeah, sounds good. I think, you know, me and my wife got a couple bottles like that every once in a while. My wife loves a good sipping tequila. Um, she don't like to shoot it or anything. She's She likes to sip on it. And um, every once in a while we'll pull one of those bottles out and sit back on the back deck and sip on some tequila or even some great rums. I got some rum from Haiti that I really love. And um, it's never, sometimes bottles are good to visit. Yes. Yeah. Extra Neo uh, aged in good bourbon yeah. barrels, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Michael, what do you, what do you got coming out, uh, you know, in the future here? Just uh, my book uh, uh, that I'm working on right now is called Spirited Lives. It's going to be short biographies of 19th century distillers. Yeah, I've gotten uh, uh, biographies written for W.L. Weller, Isaac Wolf Burnham, George Garvin Brown, E.H. Taylor, and I'm working on uh, uh, Paul Jones, but I'm also wanting to do James Thompson and James E. Pepper, and who knows, I might find another one or two that I might want to throw in there as well. Well, that'd be a book I could I could definitely get into personally. Wow. So where, where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, bourbonveach.com. Uh, follow my blog. Uh, come out with basically three blogs a week. On Monday, I just do random, a lot of history, different subjects, whatever floats my eye. And then on Wednesday, I do uh, tastings. And then on Friday, I'm rotating between different things. I just started a new thing I call Flashback Friday, where I'm uh, doing tasting notes on old bottles that I have here. Uh, I like to do a, a thing I call it Images of the Past, where I take an old photograph or something and talk about it. Uh, I'm also going to start doing some uh, cocktail stuff. I've got one coming out uh, tomorrow on uh, uh, eggnog. And then I also do book reviews. Right. I've really enjoyed reading your blog. I, I like the way that when you review uh, a whiskey that you try to pair it with a cigar. Yeah. You don't always get, you don't, you don't really give the bottles that you review a number score. No, I think rating, I think ratings are bullshit. Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you give your tasting notes and then you pair it with cigar. Right. I think that's right. A great well, thing. and I also pair it with cranberries and pecans because something I learned from Weta Michael out at Woodford, uh, she's put together this flavor wheel of different fruits that you try with the Woodford Reserve and see what flavors it brings out. And I picked the cranberries, dried cranberries, and pecans because the dried dried fruit, dried cranberries, gives you a little bit of tartness, but it also gives you a little bit of that sugar. And I want to see what that brings out in a whiskey. And then the pecan, because it's nuts are tannic. And I want to see what extra tannins does to it. Uh, other good things that you should try with them are like chocolate, uh, you know, fresh fruit. You know, uh, got a great story. I was doing a tasting once 
uh, you know, this may not make the air, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> go for it. But uh, uh, I was doing a tasting once for a charity event, and uh, this lady, had, you know, what I do is I auction off, you know, this is for like Assumption High School, I think it was, as a fundraiser. They auctioned off a tasting for six people where I'll bring, you know, five bottles of whiskey. Uh, we'll taste them and they get to keep the bottles. And this woman had put together this great spread of fresh fruit. This was like, you know, in early June or something like this. And fresh peaches were just out and everything. And we were talking about Old Forester. one of the, I always try to put in there because Old Forester is kind of Louisville's bourbon. It's, you know, for many years, it was the only bourbon made, aged, and bottled here in Louisville. Of course, that's changed here in the last couple of decades. But uh, um, it's still Louisville bourbon, one of my sentimental favorites. And I was talking about how different foods will affect the flavor and everything. And I was like, you know, like, I bet you this peach would go really well with Old Forester. So I picked up a slice of fresh peach and took a bite and took a sip of the Old Forester. And it was really, really good. If you, if you haven't tried that, you really should. And the woman says, oh, I'm going to have to try this. So she picks up a bite of peach and takes a bite and takes a sip of the Old Forester. And she goes, oh, my God, that's orgasmic. <laughs> <laughs> And her husband looks over at me and goes, well, I'm going out and buying a case of peaches and a bottle of Old Forester. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's great. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure to have you You're on well. the show today. We really enjoyed sitting down with you, especially in this great place you have upstairs yeah. in your home. Well, thank you all for coming. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing your whiskey with us, too. Oh, yeah. It's been Love a blast. It. So all, right. uh, all of our listeners out there, you can make sure you go to bourbonveach.com and check out Michael's blog. And, and Michael, I, I guess you don't really sell your books online, but they're on Amazon, right? They're on Amazon. They're on Amazon. So check out Michael's books and uh, and uh, hope we can do this again someday. It's yeah. been a lot of fun. Yeah. Just let me know when you want to come back. We'll do it. <laughs> All right. appreciate all of our listeners and we'd like to thank you for taking time out of your day to hang out with us here on the bourbon road we hope you enjoyed today's show and if so we would appreciate if you'd subscribe and rate us a five star with a review on itunes make sure you follow us on facebook twitter and instagram at the bourbon road that way you'll be kept in the loop on all the bourbon road happenings you can also visit our website at thebourbonroad.com to read our blog listen to the show or reach out to us directly we always welcome comments or suggestions. And if you have an idea for a particular guest or topic, be sure to let us know. And again, thanks for hanging out with us.